You are listening to They Might Be Heroes, a D&D podcast with your host, Brigham Larson. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the They Might Be Heroes podcast, a Dungeons & Dragons podcast with me, your host, Brigham Larson. With me tonight is our illustrious DM, Eric Taylor. Hello. Also with me is uh, Brandon Matthews. Hey, how you doing? Karen Matthews. Aloha. And Holly Larson. Hello, hello. Missing from our illustrious cast tonight is Mache. Um, she's out with, um, computer issues, but we're just here for a recap issue or a recap episode tonight. So we're just going to go over the adventures thus far because we started this podcast, uh, after the fact, after our D and D sessions had already begun as a group. And so, um, we wanted to make sure our listeners got the true backstory and knew everything that was going on because, you know, there's been quite a number of events that have happened before we started, our adventure to round up the four items to take down the Kezerkai. So tonight we're going to start out with uh, talking about the history of the podcast, as it were so far, the story that you have yet to see. Um, so let's go ahead and just jump right into it, guys. The first thing that happened to us, we were um, our very first session when we all first started playing, we all wound up and we were in a big giant prison. Um, now, uh, Eric, what again was the name of the prison? It's been a little while and I've forgotten myself. So you guys were just in, you were in the city of Southgate, which has the big arena with the prison underneath it. Okay. So we were all there in Southgate. And so the first episode, um, and my very first encounter with role-playing, uh, started off, we were inside of a prison and on our way out to do battle to the death against, um, enemies that were pitted against us um for for you brandon what was your initial experience as we started into this role-playing experience well before we go there i I do want to point something out to our listeners this this world that we're playing within is a pretty substantial creation that eric has been writing either a story or multiple stories within this world he's built for a very long time and he was very excited to have us play in it and I was quite excited to be a part of it because I've seen some of his writing and it's very well done. And it it sounds like he's put a lot of work into this world he's built. So I'm excited to make our mark, so to speak, on it. <clears throat> um, and I came into this, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect. It's like, oh, we're in prison. You know, we're going to have to figure a way out of this. I, I know Eric's probably got some way he's going to lead us out of this, but... You know, in the meantime, are we going to have to fight endless amounts of gladiator battles until we stumble across a solution? Is the solution going to present itself when we get out? I was I was a bit apprehensive because the whole being caged thing doesn't exactly appeal to me in real life. And I wasn't really sure how to get our characters out of that jam to begin with. Um, I Listeners, I'm sure you've probably picked up on I'm one of the people who has slightly more experience with D&D, so... I'm constantly trying to strategize what we should be doing, especially during combat. And my character is unfortunately not the sort who would do that. So trying to balance the two has kind of always been driving me nuts. And 
and for me that was an issue too because like the 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 big hint that Eric gave us going into our first session of D and D is after we'd done all of our character creation and everything, uh, the hint that we had been given is we were all in prison and we had to figure out a reason why we were in the prison, why we were being brought into the arena of Southgate to fight to the death. And for me, it was inherently a little bit difficult because I, uh, I did. I couldn't think of a reason why my character, a lawfully good character, somebody that would never do something illegal intentionally, would be in jail. But I had to be there for the sake so that I could keep an eye on your character, Brandon, because we. I knew that there was something going on, and I had been sent by the elders of my people to keep an eye on you. Now that hadn't been revealed at that point, but I had to figure out a reason to be in jail, and so it made for a little bit of a confusing starting experience but it was also fun because it made me really think about my character and try and figure out a reason why i would be there Um, absolutely and for me it was pretty easy my character is kind of nuts (laughs) so he's probably just got thrown in jail for either disturbing the peace or they don't just don't like crazy people in this town okay um so let's uh, toss it over to a couple of our other players um holly or uh, Karen, why, uh, what were your experiences? Why were your characters there? And maybe Holly could take a little bit of a time to uh, also introduce us to Enna, who was the character you were playing at the time. Sure. Um, I started out playing Enna the Bard. She's a tiefling. Um, she, she kind of has an interesting story as to why she was imprisoned. Um do you want her version of the story or the actual happenings? Well, I uh, guess the, the question is, is which is the actual version? Because we know, mm-hmm. and it's very colorful in the way she talks because she was a bard. But I mean, what's the, mm-hmm. I, what's her position on why she was in jail? Oh, of course. Um, Anna, she is unaligned. You know, she, she just kind of does whatever she needs to, to get what she wants. She, she sees the, the advantage of both good and evil action. And so um, the way her story goes is she was, uh, she's a performer most times, and she um, had performed a certain piece to this group of caravanners, and they promptly fell to sleep, whether intentional or not. Rose will, or not Rose, um, Anna's probably not going to tell you. Um, but after her audience fell asleep, she starts rifling through their goods and finds a few things that she likes, but unbeknownst to her, there was a a patrolling group of officers going by at the time. And so she was kind of caught red handed, but to her, literally in her case, and she's a TV, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, to her and in her point of view, she had done nothing wrong. This was her payment for her her performance and so um you know that this is what she would do from time to time to kind of get ahead in the world and in this case it kind of turned on her and she she just uh is kind of biding her time in jail until she finds an opportunity to escape and yeah okay. that's kind of i don't know what else to tell you about her <laughs> uh, no, that was uh that was really good it gives us an idea of kind of uh the character that anna was and why she um, 
made for some kind of hilarious uh, bits of role playing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I have one particular story that I want to tell as we get to that point um, a little bit later on here. But first, let's talk about um, your character a little bit, Karen. Why was she angelic? Because this is one that never really made much sense to me because of the way your character has been played so far. Like, why the heck was she in jail at all? Um, well, she was, uh, she was actually a, kind of like a missionary to a small village, um, trying to help out everybody and she was going to get supplies and her caravan to get supplies was attacked and everybody was captured and she was kind of tossed into jail. Oh. So <laughs> it was, um, a wrongful imprisonment if we'll, if we will. Yeah. She wasn't very happy about it and she wasn't quite sure why her, like, caravan was in jail, but you never know, so. Um, something interesting, it was just pointed out in chat, um, uh, uh, Eric says that she was sold into slavery kind of a situation. It was one of those things where they needed more people to fight in the arena, and so you'd been caught and sold into slavery as a result yeah. of that. Okay. Yeah. So, well, this makes for an interesting um situation for us because our first role-playing session we all started out and we were describing our characters and our actions and we were being prodded towards this platform and once uh all of the player characters got to this platform that's where the real interesting things started and we were tossed into combat not what we were maybe 20 minutes into our first session and here we went mm -hmm. up on this rising platform that comes up uh, into the middle of the arena, in the middle of the floor of the arena, where we're surrounded by enemies, and this group of five heroes had to battle against. Um, was it? I think it was. Was it? Was it five or six? We went up against. I don't remember it was exactly. Six or so. I think it was six um, or so. You did forget, however, that we had a barbarian in our group. Right, and I was going to discuss that. Um, uh, the barbarian in our group at the time, her name was. I don't know if we ever learned her name. I don't name. think we ever did learn her name, did we? She was, was just... Aziel was... Okay, uh, Eric just said that it was Aziel. We never really got to learn her name because, as we can describe later on, uh, she was not interested in talking to any of us, especially to my character, uh, for reasons that was revealed later. But um, the five of us all end up in the middle of this arena, and despite the fact that none of us know each other, know nothing about each other, we were tossed in to fight against this group of enemies um, for our very lives. And uh, it was an interesting session, if only because... Uh, it, it For me, it was my first combat, and it was kind of challenging because we were still trying to figure out uh, the various ways that each of us could use our abilities. Um, does anybody have something particular they'd like to talk about from the first battle that we had? Anybody at all? <laughs> okay it was extremely memorable apparently um it's just well, it was <laughs> the trend of sort of the trend of you guys feeling like it gave you too many monsters to fight <laughs> yeah been, that was that, that way since combat one that that's our concert refrain eric's making these fights too tough when in reality i mean if you've played fourth edition the combat encounters are designed to be challenging especially mm -hmm. if you're putting them at the right level and eric is very much and sometimes annoyingly so uh, gone out of his way to make sure that we are fighting level appropriate encounters and you know we're, we're being challenged to the best of our ability cough that stupid robot that would 
take ranged attacks. Cough. Well, we'll get to the stupid robot later. There's a lot <laughs> yes. to be talked about there, um, particularly of how much of a pain it was for um, me and Match's uh, character. Uh, shoot, why can't I remember names tonight? Uh, <laughs> not Aziel, but for Zeverai. Uh, Zev, for Zeverai. Um, we there are a number of challenges discussed there, but I, this first combat, while it was challenging to a point, it was also thrilling because it, it, in a way, it did convey the real sense of reality that we were in. We were five um, characters that had been pulled from different areas, um, different walks of life, and all of a sudden were being forced to fight to the death. And it really did come down to be some pretty tight. Um, encounters at some point and it really conveyed for me at least that sense of oh my gosh we could actually die here and the campaign could be over before it even starts (laughs) one of of my memories of that encounter was explaining to to uh, scather why it provokes a opportunity attack every time he tries to move away it's true I remember thinking to myself, okay, I, I need to plan out what the best way is. It, uh, it would be for our team as we're designed to win it. We all need to uh, crowd up in one corner, get behind Scather, and uh, – oh, crud. Now I've lost the barbarian's name. We'll get to why she's not important Ozio. in a second. Ozio. Ozio, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking, okay, the rest of us need to get behind them. We need to be putting you know the meat shields in the way as much as possible, and I had – to stop myself because if I do that, then, you know, I'm, I'm going into metagame territory because at the time, you know, Tom, my warlock would, he's, he's not a good battle strategist. He would not be yelling at everyone to do those things. And so I'm sitting there biting my tongue and hoping like, heck, you know, we can make it through this. And I'm trying to gently nudge the, the new players into areas like, yeah, why don't you, why don't you give that a shot? That'd, that'd probably work really well. I just remember I was always moving and still provoking opportunity attacks because I was just stuck between well, two yeah, bad guys. I mean, we we did we did start off that combat in the most unfavorable position you could put anybody in. We were surrounded on all sides. Mm-hmm. So I mean eventually, unless we can make ourselves an opening, which we eventually did, we we more or less got boxed in. Right. And I mean, as annoying as that was for us as um player characters having to deal with being surrounded by our enemies it also again it adds it it goes back to eric's ability as a dm to tell an interesting story because you get thrown into this arena you're coming up in the middle of it as this group being made to fight for your life you're not going to be in the favorable position you're going to be in the worst position possible because they want to see in this combat they want to see people get slaughtered and so want to see the blood exactly so for us to come up and to be in a favorable position though like this is easy we're just gonna smack these guys and have them fall over i mean how how boring would that be for the spectators so (laughs) from a story standpoint it makes sense from a player standpoint for the five of us it was kind of a nightmare but we dealt with ah! it and eventually we did get through it. It was a challenge. I think at one point um, someone, I think I know at least someone went down at one point or another. I think though we came out of it, it fairly me. close. I think it was you because you <laughs> were really getting beat on. And I remember being quite furious that I was having a struggle to try and get to you and stop it because as the tank character, it was driving me a little bit nuts, but um, we did eventually get out of it. And so, Afterwards, um, we all wound up back um, because of 
the collars around our neck, which we'll get into describing now, we all uh, fell unconscious. And before we knew it, we were back inside of um, a jail cell, all three of all five of us. together. Or did we go unconscious or were we compelled to walk there? I'm trying to remember how the story I, went. I think we woke up and we're like, what are we doing here now? I think it was something along those lines. And it was, um, it was the first point we realized that we didn't have total control over our own bodies. Even like there was, um, these collars that were, um, around each of our necks, uh, compelled us to do different things. Like they could outright knock us out or even make us, uh, go to specific locations when whoever was controlling them, uh, activated them. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a bit of a problem and it was an inconvenience at the time, but it becomes a real issue later on. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the, when we all first met each other for the first time, that was, that was an, at least especially interesting session of RP for me, uh, because of how things went down between me and Aziel. Um, does anyone have something particular they want to talk about before I just launch into talking about, uh, my story? Um, the the hardest part of that initial role playing experience and what kind of made it awkward for me is I'm the kind of person who's going to try to do whatever he can within the limits of his character to move the story along because you know I I want to see what you know Eric's got up his sleeve for us next. Um, the trough of water bubbles as you walk past it. Yes. the <laughs> The problem was, you know, again, my character is more or less completely insane. I mean, he mingled with dark powers he shouldn't have, and I'll talk more about that entire backstory i'm sure later on as to what in the world he actually did to himself but i more or less half the time i spit catatonic or tom did rather and <laughs> eric made a point of pointing out every single thing he could that i you know told him beforehand would probably trigger this sort of catatonic state <laughs> and anytime i tried to make any headway he'd be like and this happens like ah, catatonic again <laughs> It was kind of mean, but at the same time, it is really funny because, you know, it, it that's the character I chose to play. And, you know, that's I have to hope that the story moves along and just play my part to the best of the ability, even if it is just seeing the rocking back and forth, trying not to scream. Right. Um, Holly or Karen, do you have anything else you want to add before I uh, start talking about the confrontation between uh, Aziel and Skather? I'll jump in. Sure. Um uh, especially since I'm kind of the one that initiated that confrontation. Um, <laughs> Enna's character, since she's very self-serving, during the battle she had been particularly impressed with the um, fighting abilities of the barbarian, and she thought that befriending her would be a benefit to her since she was trying to find a way to escape. She wanted to be able to use that to her advantage. So as soon as they had their first chance to kind of sit and talk, she wanted to kind of uh, get on her good side, I guess you could say. So she had opened up conversation. However, it was really hard to do so because she was so, um, oh, I don't even know how to explain it. She was so focused on the, the lizard in the room that she, you know, it's like this, just um, hatred was just emanating from her. And so it was hard to, for Enna to kind of uh, break past that in order to 
befriend Aziel. So it was a little bit frustrating for her. So she eventually just sat back and she's like, these guys aren't going to be any use to me at all. And, you know, she kind of lost a little bit of interest at that point. But um, so that's kind of how it, the the conflict had begun was because um, Anna started asking questions like, what's your conflict with him? You know, do you know this guy? What's going on here? And that's kind of where this all started. So, yeah, the the issue came back um, during this session, this section of the RP. It was the first time we all uh, introduced ourselves to each other. And at some point we all told each other at least our names and we got out about a little bit about what our characters were, with the exception of this barbarian character, Aziel. Now, the reason for it was is because of an utter and complete hostility that she had towards uh, my character, Scather. Um, the reasons for it were, um, and during the RP session, it was an extreme struggle for me, especially as a new RPer, because I couldn't comprehend what Aziel's uh, issue with me was. She was just vehemently angry at me. She wouldn't look me in the eye. She didn't want to have anything to do with me, no matter what I tried to do, no matter if I complimented her on her battle skills and her ability to protect uh, the group during that first encounter, not to mention her uh, <laughs> tremendous uh, combat power. Like she, she was amazing during that first one. It was We were all commenting on like how cool the class was, and we were kind of thinking, hey, this is fun. I want to try that sometime. Uh, but we it didn't it didn't matter what we did she refused to talk to me and afterwards i um had a conversation with eric and got a little bit more information about it but um something we already knew going into this and what i knew going into it is that there was a racial prejudice against um the sistra altogether like we're we're universally hated um i mean well maybe not hated but at least not liked very well at all because of the things that the people, um, the, the straw had done in the past in their conquests, partly in connection to the Kezerkai. But my people have, um, had broken off from the main group of the straw and were, um, mostly peaceful as it were. And, uh, didn't really have any conflict. But what I found out after the fact is that, Aziel's family and her entire village had been slaughtered by a group of Thra. So while that would be bad enough in and of itself, um, as far as the story goes, and it would make her more racially prejudiced against my people, I found out that apparently it was a bandit, a group of bandit Thra that were marching under the symbol of the dervish, the symbol of my own tribe, even though they weren't uh, actually members of my tribe. And so she saw me as the embodiment of everything that had destroyed her old way of life and the way that her family had lived and everything about her and her people. And so it made for this incredibly headbutting confrontation. And I thought for one minute we were going to go at it during this role-playing section. And it was extremely conflicting for me because as a person and as um, a role player, it is kind of my standpoint. Like I wanted to try and befriend those around me that seemed worthy of my character's attention and being as excellent in combat as she was and her ability to protect others. That was inspiring to me from a character standpoint. And so it was hard to not be able to talk to her at all. Um, but anyways, we, 
I kind of went off on a tangent there. Is there anything else we want to talk about that before we all collapse from paradise? Oh, we should probably talk about the crazy old man that came and talked to us a little bit. <laughs> he came in twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think crazy... it's also worth noting that that was the first time Tom kind of broke out of his craziness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, I mostly... I needed a reason to basically get myself into the scene because I wanted I wanted to participate and I wanted a reason to not sit there and just be completely nuts. So I more or less had to decide, okay, I can't play Tom as a catatonic nut job all the time. Cause otherwise I'm just gonna sit there except during combat when I'm, you know, fleeing spells, which, you know, doesn't make as much sense. I mean, you know, why be completely nuts one second and then being you know, ready to curse and hurl eldritch blast with wild abandon next so the presence of that old man you know more or less kind of triggered tom back into reality snapped him out of it and you know i, I just basically I, I tried to get back in the scene and you know tried to you know be a part of the role-playing experience mm-hmm. and eric could you tell us a little bit about um the character that brought this about like this guy that came in and told us, like, I think you kind of used it as a tool of the DM to get us out of our shells and to talk a little bit more. Um, you know, and that's, I knew that it was going to be a struggle with a first time group of players, um, especially a group of players who didn't necessarily have a lot of strong role-playing tendencies. And it's something that both you and Holly had mentioned up front is we're not sure how we feel about the role-playing aspect. We're kind of nervous to do it. Um, excuse me. So when it got brought in and you guys were kind of just sitting there, um, we spent, I think we spent probably 10 minutes just sort of trading names back and forth. (laughs) And I was kind of pounding my head against my desk going, okay, I got to do something to kind of liven this (laughs) up and kind of open people up. Um, and so we got you, um, Aziel going and that, spiraled out of control very quickly <laughs> yeah um it was i think it spiraled twice <laughs> yeah, it wasn't supposed to be as big as it was <laughs> and um it just it you know there i had a backstory from you i had a backstory that mache and i had built together for aziel and they clashed and i'm i i am a firm believer as a dungeon master i i really dislike the tropey come into a D&D campaign and four of the five people know each other um, and then the other person doesn't know them they're like from half a continent away but they become friends instantaneously mm-hmm. I just to me that has always driven me insane as a dungeon master and a player um, so I liked the fact that none of you guys really knew each other and there was a little bit of a animosity but it, it got out of control and so I brought in this old man. I was sitting there listening to you guys kind of just bicker back and forth in character <laughs> and went, okay, I've got to, I've got to rein this in again. And so I brought in this old man who hadn't been in the story. He hadn't existed. He wasn't anybody other than a spur of the moment creation to kind of, you know, be the lasso that pulled my characters back. And once that happened, I kind of seemed like I had gotten you guys on a path to figure out how to escape and about 15 minutes later, it spiraled right back out of control. And it was um, Aziel and Scather at each other's throats again. And so that's, 
and it was right before we were trying to wrap things up for the evening and so i brought back in the old man one more time but he's you know he's just a character that i created right there to take care of something that had become a problem so this is something that i love about um the D experience and especially uh what kind of interests me about maybe someday in the future DMing is because you can create a character on the fly like that in order to help with the storytelling aspects and to try and resolve conflicts that need to get taken care of so we can move along with the story. And it was a wonderful example of that. And he was great com- comedic effect too. He's like, I was like, I don't care whether you like yourselves or not. You need to get some rest. You're going to be fighting lots of other monsters. And it was, it was hilarious because like you, you came in and you were pointing out how ridiculous it was that we as, um, as characters in this story were sitting there bickering with each other when in the next few hours, potentially we were going to be fighting for our lives again. And so it was a great little tool that you used to help, um, move us along and get us out of the, uh, RP loop that we were stuck in. Um, well that about wraps it up for the first initial session that we had. Um, it was, uh, it was kind of a long night if only because the combat did take longer. I mean, that's fourth edition for you. Um, at least from everything I heard, I can't speak to playing in other, uh, battle role sets from the other Dungeons and Dragons editions, but it was a little bit long, but the next time we picked it up, we were right back there again. We'd just woken up in the morning or morning, quote unquote. I don't know what time it was, Um, but we continued our session from there. And this is where things uh, uh, start to get a little bit more interesting as the story goes. Uh, Somebody want to give us a little bit of a recap about what happened at the beginning of that first session? Anybody? Walking down a dark hallway. Did I lose somebody? Hello. I'll I'll try to recall it to the best of my ability. <laughs> Sorry, I just realized I was muted. Aha! <laughs> um, if memory serves, we all decided to, you know, maybe go look around, and our barbarian friend decided to go on ahead without us because she was sick and tired of this. And we ended up getting separated, and we decided, okay, well, we need to follow her because we don't know what these collars are going to do. Uh-huh. And after a, a few couple of wrong turns, we ended up getting separated even further from her to the point where the collar started to constrict around our necks. And and and, and this is where the first uh, str- uh, the first skills challenge that we had faced as a group came into play. Exactly. Uh, and it basically was get back away, you know, back towards where we were going to the point where the collars aren't choking you anymore. Right. And it, I, be- I believe that was difficult for you know a, a lot of us because we weren't sure how to, you know skill challenges work. We weren't really sure how to mm-hmm. utilize our skills in such a way that we could adequately describe what we were trying to do using that skill as a you know kind of a an impetus for what we were actually doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it was a pretty challenging uh, little mechanic because you know it's 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 not as open ended as a lot of other skill challenges I've done. You know, it's it's fairly specific. You have to do something to get yourself closer to where you started before right. you started going the complete wrong way. So, you know, you have to either get really creative or, you know, just start throwing out endurance or athletics all the time. Right. And 
Uh, somebody have something to say? Good. I I remember trying to figure out how to use my skills because my skills aren't necessarily athletically inclined. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, uh, I don't know what to do. I'm an invoker. I see a quick pair. Oh, that didn't help. <laughs> and this was something that was um, new and different to me. Like I hadn't expected this. Like I didn't. Um, at this point, I still knew very, very little about how Dungeons and Dragons worked. I had yet started listening to shows like Critical Hit and things, and so I had no idea what to expect. And so then I'm looking at my skills, and like my four highest skills here is it's uh, diplomacy, uh, insight, or not? Oh, sorry, this um, yeah, diplomacy, insight, uh, intimidate, and religion. I'm like, how the heck are these four abilities like the highest scores that I have supposed to help me get out of this situation where I'm choking to death and it it made for some interesting challenges, but there was one that was one part of it that was particularly hilarious the way it happened. And it's um, something that Holly did in connection to my character. So Holly, would you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, Anna um, has, you know, lots of charisma and, so most of her skills are based around that. So at one point, um, my highest, I think it was bluff, I want to say. Or... <laughs> I think it was bluff. I think yeah. it was bluff, it was yeah. Bluff. So um, I decided to use bluff and my, my description of why that would help me and how I'd use it in my um, in my escape was that I feigned that I had no strength or, um, I guess, no ability to continue on and made this piteous look to Scather, the defender, and he took pity on me and carried me the rest of the way. <laughs> so. And it, this was hilarious to me because here we are, we're all struggling to get back and Holly gets one of these awesome successes. It, it finally works. It was wonderful for her. And she describes this way into uh, getting herself out of having to get back. She just tricks my character into carrying her back to where we were coming from. And, you know, it was, it was great comic relief, but here I am. I was consternated that, oh my gosh, we're struggling with all this and now I have to carry someone on top of it. And it was just funny to think about from a story playing aspect. I could just picture it in my mind. Here I am, like all of a sudden I'm feeling incredibly chivalrous and I have to pick her up and carry her the rest hey, of the you, way. you chose that character type. You're, <laughs> that's what you wanted. Well, it, but then it was funny because once we finally did complete the skill challenge, we get back and I put her down. Oh, and she's perfectly fine again. And I was just like consternated about the whole thing. Like it was like my character, you know, like snaps out of that moment of chivalry that he had for that brief moment and is just furious with her. (laughs) And, but, um, after we had done this, after we uh, successfully got the skill challenge over with, we realized like we had come to a, a T-shaped hallway and it was go one way or the other. And so we'd taken the one path and that's what initiated this whole being choked to death by the callers. And so we realized, well, we probably need to go the other way because once we got back to where we were, it had gone away. So we were able, so we decided that we'd head the other way because we figured that was probably the way we would go to find Oziel. And so we headed down, headed down this uh, second hallway and are going down a set of very dark stairs. 
and it's getting darker and darker all the way down. And when we got to the bottom of the stairs, there was, you know, um, quite a surprise waiting for us as a group. Like we, like, I, I don't think that any of us were expecting what happened there to happen. And many of us, I think, believed, uh, that it was a hoax at first, but, um, well, I guess we'll just come out and say it. Uh, we get to the bottom of the stairs and there at the stair foot of the stairs is Aziel dead, uh, completely dead life gone completely out of her. And, the character was gone at that point, and we were like shocked. Like I, I remember thinking to myself, "Well, this has got to be a trick. There's something else going on here. We have another skills challenge or something in order to get her back." Well, that wasn't the case. Like, I, what was it, everyone else's reactions when we first found out that this character was gone? I thought I was a per- terrible person because, like, my my character is such a a community minded person. If she's like you know, a missionary to a village and she was trying to get supplies to her village and getting kidnapped. I was like, really? I'm supposed to take care of all this group and there's a girl dead. Why? <laughs> um, the this... DM is playing tricks on us. <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> well, Anna just saw it as such a waste. She had such potential. Yeah. And, you know, it was surprising to me because, I mean... And knowing what we knew about her character and how strongly willed she was from our previous RP encounter and from the the battle that we had had, like I was in disbelief that somehow she had just died. Well, when talking to Eric about it at a later point, it was simply because because she was by herself and she couldn't get back. She had ended up dying. The choker had taken her out because we had gotten too far apart from each other as a group, and she ended up choking out. I had, I, the convenient thing about all of this, though, is this was <laughs> kind of a little bit planned, to be perfectly honest. Our our DM and Match were pulling a slight a, a bit of trickery on us. But, you know, there was a good reason for this. And since Match isn't here to kind of explain that, maybe you could talk a little bit about it, Eric. Um, well, like, what happened is when we had rolled the characters, we kind of threw match in, like, four hours before we were going to play our first session. Um, she and I had played D&D before, we've been friends for a long time, and I mentioned I was playing D&D, and she's like, oh, really, that'd be awesome, I'd love to play. And I said, oh, okay, um, yeah, I can make that work. In, didn't she? Five, five players would be good. Um... Okay, and at the time, I was like, well, we got to roll a character, and she's like, well, I'm at work until 7, and we were playing at 7.30. So, <laughs> I was like, oh, alright, well, I guess I'll make you a character. Uh, what would you like to play? And so, we kind of talked about it a little bit via text message, and so I went and rolled up this character, and texted back and forth, and got a little bit of a backstory idea from her, and I flushed it out just a little bit, and then we jumped in with this character, and being Mache and having the strong roleplay bent that she has, she fleshed it out a lot just in that first session. But as the session came to an end and we were talking the next day, she kind of said to me, well, I don't know how this is going to fit because I feel like I'm going to fight with Scather all the time. And, you know, I don't, the character isn't mine. I didn't create the character. I, I don't know how I feel about that. So we talked about some things and we decided to retire Aziel um and let her Very create violently. her own character 
Um, and when we talked about it, you know, we wanted kind of that shock factor. You were jumping into what was, as we'll get into in a minute here, the big boss fight at the end of your first, you know, mini dungeon thing. And so we needed something that was kind of be a slap in the face for some of the first timers. And hearing you guys' real reactions here, like versus your character reactions, it's it's cool to see that that worked. Um, and so that's that's why we killed off Ozio is because we needed to, you know, we needed to bring in Mache's character that she had gotten the opportunity to create, um, and we wanted to do it with kind of a slam bang finish, as it were. Okay. So while this was traumatic and a little bit shocking for each of our characters, you know, we had to continue pressing on, and. So as we're stepping over the corpse of Oziel, we move into this large, dark room, and immediately things begin to happen. Right in front of us is revealed to be, at least what it looked like at the beginning, was a giant pile of metal, (laughs) as I'm thinking of it in my head. But then shortly after we step into the room, there's a reaction to the necklace, or to the uh, the collars that are around each of our necklaces. And I think that it was, was it Tom or Ravine that was getting kind of pulled toward this? I think it was around. Scather. Was it me? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you were dead. Yeah, it, it was Scather. That's right. You were right. You it failed your, you failed your check. Right. Cause that's right. You, you had us do check. like we got right back. Well, it wasn't, a, I think it was an acrobatics check. Me and my lovely, acrobatics checks we don't get along very well it was something <laughs> along those lines well you're I... the one who wanted to wear plate armor well come on <laughs> i'd like to i'd like to wear plate armor by what the kind way of a sissy... i can't do anything what physically. kind of a sissy defender isn't wearing plate armor <laughs> the ones who one with do more endurance checks. <laughs> <laughs> anyways um <laughs> uh i start getting pulled towards this thing and as i do you can see kind of a wisp of energy sipping out of um, the collar around my neck, moving towards this large pile of metal that's in the room. And slowly the rest of the group starts getting pulled along with me and their uh, collars are being drained of energy. And before we know it, this massive automaton is standing in front of us, fully animated and starts talking to, his companion that was there with him at that moment. And this is where the fun uh, kind of begins to happen. (laughs) Like this was kind of mind boggling what happened here. So the interesting that happened or the interesting thing that's happening here is this automaton who's quite massive, by the way, especially compared to us. But then next to him is another automaton who's also big, even compared to me uh, as the big Thra paladin is another automaton who's kind of small compared to him. (laughs) And, you know, this was kind of shocking for us. Like, I mean, this is giant mechanical monsters in a, uh, a fantasy role playing, a fantasy role playing game. I, I was not expecting this, particular twist of events um, <clears throat> that our DM had thrown us here. But it also gave us introduction to uh, Zev. Magitech. Magitech rules, apparently. <clears throat> but it was 
shocking to run into this stuff. And um, not long after we run into him, we get attacked by the big guy. Um, maybe Eric can give us a little bit of a background here about what was going on between these two before we got started in the fight. Um, just they had been comrades and the big pile of scrap metal that you were looking at was other comrades and they had been sent on a mission which you come to find out as we went on and we'll discuss in a little bit was 2,500 years before you guys met them and the big guy was a was an automaton named Kessel and what these automatons are was they were bodies you know that were created to house the souls of some of the greatest, you know, for lack of a better term, it was, they were Robocop. Um, they were, <laughs> you know, they were, they were people who had fallen in combat and their bodies were destroyed, but they still wanted to continue to, you know, serve their, their kingdom and serve the good of the world. And so they were, they had their souls transferred into this automaton. And what had happened is they'd been sent on a mission that was supposed to just completely disrupt the Kesrakai offensive during the first war, which was 2,500 years before the time your adventure takes place. And Kessel, the big robot that you ended up fighting, ends up betraying his strike force. And the what he does to betray them um, ends up destroying a, most of his comrades and traps he and Zev in sort of this time fracture, which when you guys came down into this basement, which hadn't been explored in forever, Southgate had built, built on top of some ruins and the, the magic was pulled out of your um, collars. It reactivated it, you know, it, it, it interfaced kind of, it reacted with the temporal fracture and it what reactivated and, pulled out of stasis the automatons and so that's you guys kind of walked in in the middle of a blood feud and a betrayal mm -hmm. um and as far as they was concerned you just you just showed up out of nowhere because for them no time had passed mm -hmm. yeah and so uh Kessel was definitely very uh angry not only with zev but with us just because we happened to be there and I assume he's angry because we kind of catch him in his moment of betrayal is kind of the way he sees it as. And what ensued was, um, I think probably, I, I, it's probably the more epic of all of the battles that we've had so far, if only because of its um, difficulty challenge that it was for us. But it was also, um, as Tom will tell you, quite frustrating for the ranged group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this, I mean, if you if you haven't you know figured out long time you know D and D players, these guys were Warforged. They're uh, they're Eric's take on how he managed to incorporate the Warforged from the Eberron Player's Guide into his campaign, and I think he uh, I think he did a brilliant job with it, but. This guy, I, I believe he, he in, in the monster manual, he's called a Warforged Juggernaut, and he has this ability where he basically can redirect any ranged attack on him to, you know, basically one of our group. And considering that at this point our team was three ranged attackers, it got very frustrating because we were we were relying on 
um, Mache's new character, Zevarai, who is a, uh, a rune priest, I believe, a Warforged rune priest. And she's, you know, built fairly melee-intensive, but you, uh, Brig, and her were having the hardest time even staying alive during that fight because this this guy was, you know, he was fairly brutal. Yeah. So after after a while, you know, it almost became a stalemate for, you know, we we can't shoot him because he's going to just end up zapping one of you and you're going to go down again. So the two of you are pretty much almost left to your own devices, more or less, to finish this thing off. And it became kind of just almost a war of attrition where we eventually brought him down. Yeah. And well, the the real struggle was is this ability that he had that he could redirect him. Like every time it redirected, it was coming straight at ma- um, Madge or me. And we were struggling just to keep ourselves um, from bleeding out. And we had to uh, really pay attention to how his cooldown on that ability was working so that you guys could strike in times of opportunity when he didn't have that ability to redirect again and just, you know, outright slaughter match and I, or, uh, if, if, if we had, if we hadn't been able to overcome that, you know, what likely was to have happened is I was going to have to roll a new character and match was going to have to roll a new character again, again. <laughs> because we were just struggling with this encounter, but it was really, it is the epitome of what I guess in dungeons and dragons terms, it was a boss fight. It was meant to be extremely to be challenging, tough. uh, uh, skill sets that you're not used to abilities that really challenge the way that a group has to play in order to overcome it. And it made for a, it made for a fun and entertaining experience, even though, um, Eric will say we were, were the whiniest group of players he's ever had because <laughs> we were getting all these things thrown at us. But I mean, it was because we were frustrated as players that we couldn't do more to overcome the challenge, but it also made us think more about how to utilize our characters, how to play them in order to overcome the challenge. And we eventually did make it out of that. And it was, it was difficult, but it was also a lot of fun. But at that point, this is where we first meet um, the newest incarnation of um, Match as a player and her new character, which was uh, Zevrai, the Runeforged War Priest. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah, Warforged Rune Priest? Warforged Rune Priest? What did I say? R- you said Runeforged War Priest. <laughs> so yeah. you made it backwards. Well, for me, if I had known that was even an option. This is really, really cool. I'm just saying, like, it is cool ideas. And while I love um, Scather and um, playing with the Dragonborn uh, twist. Yeah, that is I started to say the Thrar just retooled Dragonborn, which yeah. are those are a pretty badass uh, race in and of themselves. I yeah. mean, you should have seen the rules for how Dragonborn were made in 3.5. I mean, that's that's just crazy. I love the Dragonborn to death. So. <laughs> but really, it was awesome. And we got to meet her and we talked to her you know, for a little while. And she at the time was thoroughly convinced that at least at first that we were still in her time, that as far as she was concerned, we uh, had wandered into her uh, battle with Kessel. Uh, It was still her time period. And she was going to continue on to what she was supposed to be doing on her mission to stop the Kezerkai. And so we can, we all grew as a group continue down the hallway and, um, this is our third session starting yeah, here, this by is, the way. This yeah. is beginning of the third session. We, I, uh, I, I do want to point something out cause yeah. I, I think it's kind of important to just where my character was coming from. I didn't really get a chance to explain Tom's backstory earlier on, but basically 
he was kind of a mage of little talents from the Wizard Isles. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically was approached by a, a being who put himself forth as kind of a a creature, you know, that was basically like not necessarily a god, but kind of like an avatar of magical power. And he basically wanted Tom to kind of spread the word of, you know, who he was and that he wanted to basically expand humanity's or at least, you know, the particular Isles knowledge of magic. So he would basically grant Tom, you know, an enhanced wizard powers in return for all Tom had to do was, you know, go out and spread the word of who this guy was. And, you know, Tom's kind of, you know, he's, he's a bit shifty. He's looking for any advantage he can take to get ahead. At least, you know, he was at the time. So he's like, I absolutely accept. <laughs> so then the next thing you know, his mind is assaulted with horrific uh, Lovecraftian visions of this ginormous star that is essentially a living creature, an, an old god, if you uh, want to use the Warcraft term. You know, it's and because of this, it's where he's developed, you know, several of his extreme phobias, just seeing this horrifying alien Cthulhu-esque thing just shattered his mind. Anything, you know, from uh, creepy-looking insects like wasps and scorpions will set him off, where he'll basically just, you know, flash back to that vision he had and, you know, be unable to comprehend it. It just, you know, it breaks his mind again and he goes comatose. And one of the other things that uh, will also trigger it is a grouping of, you know, basically bubbles that kind of persist momentarily remind him of the insane amount of eyes this thing had and it you know triggers the same effect he goes catatonic as his mind tries to cope with what he saw and it can't (laughs) so what he also found was at the same time this thing granted him some sort of strange unusual powers this star thing gave him the ability to call on its cold you know alien weird light and so during this fight against uh oh crap eric name kezel Kessel, thank you. I keep thinking it was Zeratul. What's wrong with me? Zeratul. Yeah, we anyway, play Starcraft, so, Starcraft on the brain. Yeah, I know. No, I haven't even been playing Starcraft lately, so I don't know what's wrong with me. So as I'm <laughs> using this power against Kessel, Kessel's pointing out that, you know, he's basically calling me out saying, look, look at what, you know, these people have become. And he's, you know, saying these sorts of things as ever. And I'm seeing, and Tom, you know, in character is sitting here going, what in the world is he talking about? This guy knows something about this creature and his main goal at this point is to just get away from anybody and everything that you know this thing might also corrupt and influence so he's thinking this thing is either sent from that you know star god whatever it is or you know knows more about it than it should Mm -hmm. so he kind of almost redoubles his efforts to use its own power to bring him down Mm -hmm. and the whole time after that you know thing is going zevrai is constantly looking at me going what are you doing? We need to talk later. (laughs) (laughs) And we do eventually get a chance for that. Um, Things get interesting. We'll, we'll just put it at that. We'll, we'll, we'll let that for the, a little bit later on here. Um, But after looting the corpse of our enemy and taking all of our shiny new loots, because you know, loot is always awesome. Um, and Zev's um, hip displacement that was awesome. Yeah, that was yeah. We we got introduced to uh, Zev's uh, uh, special ethereal pocket. I, I don't know. She, like, the she handy was, haver hip. The handy haver hip. There it is. <laughs> um, and just the ability to store all of our goods, which you know I'm sure will come in lots of use when we have to uh, make long journeys somewhere, and I need to get a sandwich. 
Um, yeah, and, and this sort of thing is you know, <laughs> alludes back to uh, Eric saying that you know the the Warforged in his campaign are essentially RoboCop. Right. I mean, you just you just picture you know the the side uh, thigh guard opening and RoboCop pulling his gun Officer out. Murphy, please Warforged put the weapon down. <laughs> exactly. So you just you picture that same thing happening, and you know she reaches in there and pulls out whatever we need, and it's like, man, that's just cool. <laughs> yeah. But um, after gathering our loots and you know talking a little bit, getting introduced to Zev, and finding about what she's on, she's desperate to get to where she was supposed to be going. And so as we, we, can, we can't convince her that it happened, you know, what was oh yeah. it, 2,500 years ago? She, there is no hope of convincing her that we're in uh, a future from her time. And so we continue on down the hallway because she's desperate to get there. So we just follow her anyways. We all want to get out of there anyways. We're still trying to get out of prison, by the way, folks. Like, don't forget, we're still trying to escape. But um, we continue down the hallway, and then all of a sudden we enter a very... Uh, strange, interesting room, which um, after a bit of an inspection, we come to find out uh, essentially is the embodiment of a giant chessboard with magical powers. <laughs> um, the problem being here, this was uh, a new, uh, another type of a skill challenge that uh, Eric, our DM, is presenting to us. The one issue that we run into here, none of us know how to play chess. Well, we know how to play chess. <laughs> We're just not good at it. Exactly. The, the basic objective was we would basically have to, you know, we'd, we'd basically almost be playing wizard's chess. We would each take a the spot of a piece mm -hmm. and we would have to basically more or less win the game to pass forward. And what became readily apparent, you know, I start mentioning Eric. Are, is is this what you're expecting us to do? Because, you know, Tom essentially more or less took the first step onto the board and, you know, was made aware of what in the world was happening. Right. And since he's a, a, ma a wizard, he's kind of a learned person. We just kind of incorporated in there that he would be, you know, a fairly decent chess player. And then I kind of put it aside to Eric going, now, Tom might be a decent chess player. Brandon, on the other hand, kind of sucks. <laughs> well, so, this puzzle, this puzzle was really funny for me because I created the puzzle and I was, I was really excited. Like my entire bent for that night was, I was most excited to sit down and play chess, but it wasn't <laughs> going to be playing chess because the entire purpose of the whole puzzle was actually, you just had to move your pieces across the board and get to the other side of the board. And then you could literally step out of your piece. But the more and more we played, the more and more it was just, well, we've got to take these pieces. And obviously we're going for a checkmate. And so this is one of those situations where the players <laughs> changed the story because oh. that wasn't what your job was initially. Your job was just to get piece from side A to side B and you could step out and be gone. And you just had to move the way a piece did and avoid interacting with the enemy side pieces but the more we played and the more you guys were like, well, we're going to we're going to have to play chess, obviously. And we've got to we've got to check that other king. Um, I was like, well, we'll go with that. That sounds more fun. <laughs> so mean. So what you're saying is we could have had made that a lot less painful, but we chose to take the hard route. Isn't that just the way it always goes? It's like you can go the easy way, but, you know, we. Yeah, we we tend to overthink things. It's it's the inherent problem of being human. We like to overthink everything. <laughs> I 
except those that, you know, just jump in and don't think at all, which also applies to this group, I think, in some occasions. <laughs> Kick down the door and <laughs> slay the goblins. Hey, I did that last night while I was playing Munchkin. We're talking Dungeons and Dragons here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. But anyways, this this chest experience, like, while it was... Um, you know, it's not exactly our group's forte. It was really a lot of fun. Like I had a lot of fun with the story. It was interesting to watch, to sit there and try and play uh, a, a digital game of chess with five of us all commenting on how we should play versus, you know, one player uh, back behind their controlling and everything. And it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was different. It was not something I was expecting out of my D&D experience that night. Um but after we uh, after we got across this, was it before? You know, there's something I want to talk about. Was it before this or after that we came across the magical chasm that we weren't sure we could walk across? I think chess it was, was after. Be- yeah, I think chess was the- after. Chess was after. Yeah. So m- maybe we should go back and talk about this for a little while because we did have this kind of uh, silly encounter that we had for a little while there, where we all thought that um, somebody was going to fall to their death. Uh, because uh, we all really stink at acrobatic challenges, apparently. No, mine was endurance. I was fine with acrobatics. I, since Enna was the smallest character, we had come across this part of our path that appeared to have this, this giant chasm that we weren't going to be able to cross over. There was this itty-bitty ledge to the one side that it looked like a person might be able to shuffle across to the other side. So being the smallest character, Enna went ahead and um, started to cross this little ledge. Did pretty well until I got about halfway across, rolled an endurance check, and didn't come out so hot. <laughs> so my character falls, and we all assume it's going to be, you know, terrible, tragic death or whatever. But um, I dropped, like, what, two feet maybe, and it was actually just an optical illusion the entire time. Yeah, and this is one of the fun things about um, playing a game that is entirely in your mind. Because all of us, when we come up to this chasm and after Eric explains it to us, we're all thinking, oh no, we're going to have to try and wedge or make our way along this ledge. And my problem was, knowing how big Scather is as a character, I'm thinking, how the crap am I ever going to get along this edge? I'm way too big. Not to mention the fact, like, even if I wasn't wearing plate armor, I would still be too big, and I've got a four-foot or a three-foot tail sticking out behind me causing issues. And it it's fun to play with uh, a player's mind in that regard. It's like, we're all thinking, oh, no, we're all going to fall to our doom. When, and then Eric twists it on us, oh, no, it's actually just an allusion to curtail uh, prisoners from trying to escape. Well, and it was it was funny because here I am. I'm sitting with a bunch of self-proclaimed nerds playing a game, <laughs> and I I will you know I was throwing everyone a pretty obvious Indiana Jones reference, right? And I picked um, up on that after and, the fact. Yeah, here's everybody, and I'm going, okay, somebody has got to say, well, let's throw rocks at it. And it's one of those situations where this puzzle wasn't supposed to be hard. This puzzle <laughs> was supposed to be, oh look, Eric's being funny and referencing pop culture. Oh ha 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 ha. Uh-huh. <laughs> now we move on, and nope, here's Anna scaling along the wall, and I'm going, oh my goodness, this was not. Hey, this was hey, <laughs> in my defense, I've really only seen one. Indiana Jones movie. <gasps> this that is really something we need to correct in our marriage, hon. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
But so it was okay, one of those two situations. if you count the crystal skull. But oh, I don't. No, 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 no one counts no, the crystal don't skull. Count the crystal skull. <laughs> so it was it was a fun experience for me as a DM because that's that's where the DM gets his enjoyment, right? Is I'm I'm telling this story, but I get to see the character's reaction. And so for me, I was really just saying, "Hey, look," and then next thing you know, it's like, "Oh, okay, we're just gonna miss this reference." <laughs> uh, all right guess i better figure out how to tell this story <laughs> well and as soon as she like i guess my problem was is because anna had made that decision to try and scale on the wall my brain went completely the opposite direction i'm thinking okay yeah we've got to scale on the wall that's the way we're going to get out of here and so i didn't think about that until after but as soon as you said that she collapsed and she's Standing there on invisible ground, I'm like, oh, Indiana Jones, here we go. Okay, now <laughs> I understand this. And, like, it clicks in my head and it makes sense. But, you know, before that, because of the reactions of other players, my mindset changed and I was thinking in different lines again. And so, um, anyways, after the chess event, um, something that's very important to state is that before any of the, of the rest of us can get up and whether it's because she's tired of being in caves or in in cramped spaces, Anna runs ahead of the rest of the group while we're all nice. still there talking oh, yeah. and recovering. And then we continue up out, and all of a sudden we come up, we're out in the open air, and we're outside of Southgate, um, finally free. But the interesting part is Anna is obviously gone. Like she's not anywhere. I to don't be seen. think that that's the way it happened. Wasn't it? <laughs> no. Am I missing something? Um, not Anna, even remotely, actually. Anna oh. didn't run ahead of everyone. We all came out at the same time. Oh yeah. Uh, when we come out into <laughs> fresh air, everyone kind of collapses to the ground. They're just so glad to be out. Anna takes a quick look around. She knows that she's not far from where we started at the prison. She hightails it out of it like as soon as she gets a chance to sneak away unnoticed that's exactly what she does so you guys all start talking you you watch zev start to construct this weird thing and you're completely distracted from the fact that one of your party members just disappeared which um makes for a little bit of a discussion a little a little bit later on because we don't notice that she's gone for a while is it after um Zev finishes the construction that we noticed that she's gone, or did we notice yep. that she was gone, you know, before? Nope. Yeah, the you, event? yeah. So, what ended up happening was we were, you know, we were kind uh, of distracted by Zev, you know, suddenly realizing, oh crap, maybe they've actually been telling me the truth because this, yeah, you know, forest thing isn't supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys all came out, you'd had to swim underwater, um, and hold your oh, breath. Oh, yeah, I forgot about something the water that we left out. It was kind of an underwater hold your breath sort of challenge. Got up and out, we're outside, all collapsed on the ground. And Anna takes off, and all of you are busy watching Zev, who walks out and says, "Whoa, there's not supposed to be trees here. Why is there trees here?" Um, yeah, and you all start smart to realize, like, "Oh, maybe I wasn't lying cause, to you because <laughs> we were right." And so that became, you know, you guys' focus. And then Zev starts building this apparatus, and everybody's trying to figure out what she's doing. And it just gave Anna and in. You know, Holly's case, you know, exactly what Holly was trying to do gave Anna a chance to walk off. Um, and I will I'll admit as a DM, this is my first time that within three sessions I have either killed or had a party member quit more than once. 
Um, <laughs> well, I, I, here's the thing. After this session was over, I actually, you know, stopped Holly and said, hey, you know, why, why'd you have her run away? And I was completely floored by her answer. I figured, oh, I just didn't really like the bard. And now that we have a rune priest, I wanted to try something different. No, she she comes back to me and says, no, I in, this was a character reason why she did this, because this is what the character would do. And there's no more reason for this character to keep being a part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've exactly. Nev- like what, what never, actually ever... happened there was after episode two, I had done a lot of reflecting on what had transpired there because the whole episode one, I knew going into it, if my character is going to stay with this group, she's got to find something or somebody to latch onto. So right away I had taken toward Match's character, Aziel. So after she died, episode two, and or you know session two, whatever you want to call it, I I was like, okay, well she's got nothing. She doesn't like any of these people. There's no fame, no fortune. There's no prize at the end of this quest. What is my character staying with this group for? And I just was drawing a blank. So I I went to Eric, our DM, and I said. You know, I, I, I need to know a little bit about what you've got planned because I don't think Enna's going to stay with the group. And, you know, we talked a little bit about what was going to, you know, transpire in the next couple episodes. And I just knew that my character had nothing to do with these people. It was just, you know, why would she want to save a world that she sees no problem with? You know, she likes the way things are. She's getting by. And so... It was completely a a character preference there. And I've never, ever had anybody. And then all the time I play D&D, it's like, yeah, I'm going to stop playing this character because it it makes no sense for her to be a part of this adventure anymore. I've never, ever seen that before. And to do that, I mean, especially coming from the perspective of someone who's fairly new to role playing, just, you know, floor me. It's like, okay, Ollie may be new to this, but, you know, make no mistake. She's the real deal with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was it was an interesting for me because I I knew uh, going into that night just because it's kind of hard as uh, as a husband (laughs) and wife not to talk about this sort of stuff. And so I knew that she was going to change characters. But, you know, I didn't know everything about what was going to happen, what was the way they were going to help the character exit. And so even though I knew the characters were going to change, I got a little bit of a surprise in the way it happened. And a good chunk of the reason why is like before we notice that she's gone, um, Zev, who after we came out of the cave had been making this construction um, because she realized she was in the wrong time, was creating this construction in order to travel back in time to her own time period to get back to where she was supposed to be for her mission. And before we can even say anything to her, she activates the thing and Suddenly, takes all of us with her. Yeah, suddenly all of us are zapped along with her, with the exception of Enna, who had wandered off. And it was at that point we realized she's gone. But then at that point we're also like, what the crap? Why are we back in time all of a sudden? This was not part of the plan. <laughs> um, Insert TARDIS noise here. But before we realize it, um, before we realize it, all of a sudden we are confronted with um, a group of people pointing uh, sharp and pointy objects. One people. Was it just you? I thought your dad was with you at that point. No, it was just me. Okay. This is my problem with being, having bad memory. So people need to help tell me the story. (laughs) (laughs) My, 
by the point that we realized that um, that we weren't in our time period, I was really ticked. My character was. <laughs> yeah, like, it was actually the the way it had happened when you went after you'd come out of the little bubble or whatever. You all turn to Zeb to ask what happened, and she's the one that you know says, you know, we're back in time. We're going to fix this. And immediately it starts this big argument. Why did you take us back? We didn't agree to this. What's going on? You left the bar. Yeah. It, and... It's like there, there's suddenly a couple of swords and a, and a wand or two pointed in her direction. It's like, yeah, yeah you're going to undo this right now. And so that's kind of what drew my character. My character was out scouting at the time, sees this big flash of light and a kind of an explosion almost. And her new character. Immediately, Rose. yeah, my new character, Rose, mm-hmm. she, she hears this shouting and so she comes to investigate and there's this group of misfits i i don't know how else to even describe (laughs) and uh a not so subtle throwback to things that have since changed well it's true i mean you see a straw with a giant robot and two humanoids you know it's just kind of odd and Mm. so she just doesn't even know what to think so she immediately has to arm herself and you know try to figure out what's going on well, it's at this point that um, we get into a little bit of a confrontation trying to figure out who this uh, new character is pointing arrows at us. And um, if I remember not long after that, we hear a, a very loud noise and uh, Rose informs us we need to get, we need to get out of sight. Is, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I can hear him coming. And so I tell everyone we need to get out of here everyone kind of stands around arguing a little bit more and i say no we really need to go and that's when we go back down through the hatch back into the tunnel where everyone had just come out which i'm just going to come it's one of my favorite things to do as a dm it's like oh just kidding you just came from here but you're going back now because it means (laughs) i have to create less environments and i can tell more story and create less environments and i'm not tolkien so i'm not really good at describing environments (laughs) Um, so the less of them I have to create, the better off I am. So, okay. Now, Eric, you may have to help, uh, help us out with our recall of what exactly transpired in what order. I mean, at some point we figured out that, uh, Zevarai's little magical time traveling thing went completely awry. And instead of sending us back into the past, she sent us way the crap into the future. Right, and that happened before you guys dove into the tunnel. So, you know, you had the big confrontation. Rose has the arrows pointed. You have the argument. um, And Zev pretty much says, no, I'm here to – I need to get down in here and finish this mission. And it gets established, and Enna is instantly suspicious because I texted Holly, and I said, hey, just so you know, their disappearance is part of history. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the text that I never got. (laughs) possible. There were a lot of those that week. There were. <laughs> but I had tried, I, I, I was under the impression, it made for a really interesting role-playing experience for all of you, because I was under the impression that I had sent text messages to Holly saying, so, side note, when they show up, they're going to think they're in the past by 2,500 years, when in reality, they're another millennium in the future. Um, they're a part of history. They're the cause of a lot of the bad stuff that's going on in your world yada 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 and holly was supposed to know all of this going in and holly didn't because i apparently my phone wasn't sending text messages very well that week and it was it made for some interesting role play 
<laughs> Kali just didn't know. She was like, yeah, I, 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 I had no know. idea. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it was just, who are you and what? Um, okay, what? <laughs> At this point, I'm like extremely distrustful of Zevrai because part of the reason I was out in the village and like part of my backstory is that I was searching for a lost sister and I needed to know that she was okay. And we're in the future and I'm like, you killed my sister. I don't like you. <laughs> but regardless of all this stuff that happens, we have to get away because something is coming after us. Now, if I remember right, it was some of the lesser Kazarkai minions that were coming after us because they had been drawn by the blinding flash of light when we all appeared from the past. Right. Yeah. The, the magical signature, which, you know, we can, we'll talk a little bit about more here later. Um, cause it applies more toward the exposition you got at the end of this session. But mm. yeah, the, the magic that the, the time portal that Zev had done had attracted Kezrakai attention because in this time period, as you found out through a little bit of talking with Rose, mostly through a lot of me sending messages to Holly while we were sitting there because I realized, oh, I hadn't sent these or you didn't get them. So I was getting texts saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. And I think I'm supposed to because you're acting like I should. And <laughs> so I kept firing text message off and we established, no, you're in the future. You're not in the past, which then made everybody more mad at Zev. And I have never in my history as a DM and I've, I've spent probably 80% of all the time I've played D&D, I've been a DM. Um, I've never seen that level of animosity grow that quickly. <laughs> um, just in this group in general, between Zev and Scather, and then every, I mean, sorry, Oziel and Scather, and then everybody in Zev. And I realized pretty quick, huh, well, the amount of railroading I've done till this point has caused problems. <laughs> I probably need to find a way to fix that. And something I don't think that anybody knows, because um, I don't think I've discussed it, everything that went from the moment you guys showed up in the grove and the animosity started to the end of that session, I made up as we went. <laughs> didn't nice. have any of it planned because nice. there was all of a sudden this big animosity that I hadn't yeah, planned thought about before. Yeah. Well, anyways, so... We continue, continuing on, we, we have to get away from this group. So we're heading back down into the tunnel we had just emerged out of, which at this point has um, definitely degraded. Yeah, uh, it looks way different. It looks way different. It's changed completely. The water that we had come out of at one point is gone. Uh, we had had to swim out of or swim through that. That's gone. And we're in the middle of another skills challenge trying to get away from... Uh, these Kezrakai and Kezrakai minions that are chasing us uh, along with Rose. And so we're heading down this tunnel and, you know, I think this was one of our more successful skills challenges that we've had here. I don't think that there was any major failures. And so we were able to get through it fairly smoothly. And so as a result, before too long, um, a passageway is opened up and Rose is telling us all duck in here, get in here right now. And so we're all able to get in there and get the door shut behind us before getting caught by these minions who are wailing against the wall and just absolutely ticked <laughs> that we had gotten away. 
And the next thing that we run into is a large group of um, individuals who are pointing weapons at us. Uh, me in particular, because I definitely shouldn't be there. And this is this is where we first run into um, uh, Ephraim. If that's is that right? It's yeah. Rose's father. Yeah, Ephraim. And uh, we um, start a discussion with this individual. Um, somebody give a little bit uh, that's uh, knows a little bit more about the story that we went over at that point. Can somebody relate that here for us? I anyway. vote Eric. Go ahead, Eric. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so what had happened is, you know, you found yourselves set forward in time. You find yourselves in a rebel camp um, because first war had taken place in Zeverize twenty five hundred years in the past from Southgate, um, and that war had been not won per se, but the Ezerkai had been driven back. Um, second war started the moment you guys, and this is something you found out during the discussion, the moment you guys warped forward in time, hoping to go back, that particular release of magic, um, alerted the Kezrakai that there were pretty powerful mages that were beginning to take root in humanity again, and they made a push. And so in reality, this this event started a war and that war is one that humanity wasn't ready for and humanity lost. And so indirectly all of you, but specifically Zev were now responsible for starting the second war and pretty much resulting in the enslavement of all mankind. And what you then found out during the same discussion, um, we get to see wicket for the first time and <laughs> wicket arrives wicket. and does some, does some looking at Tom and what we find out is Tom, you know, and I'll let, I'll let Brandon talk a little bit more about what we had done together for the character, but Tom had been infectious. He hadn't just been a missionary looking to spread the word. He was literally spreading the word. Um, <laughs> and the he was tentacle monsters. He was one of the reasons why the Kezrakai had been able to advance so quickly is because he'd been unknowingly and unwittingly spreading this plague and kind of creating hosts for Kezrakai minions. And so tell us, just talk a little bit about that and how much of what I sprang on you right there was a surprise. <laughs> Cause I know um, that not all of it was something you had gotten. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll talk more about this when we do the individual one-on-one -on -one discussion of characters, but Tom is a star-packed warlock, and I'd been wanting to play a star-packed warlock for a long time, and this seemed like an ideal way to do it, because, you know, I was I was supposed to be the party striker. Um, the the way I, I, you know, pitched it to Eric was, okay, you know, tell me tell me about the Kezrakai. I mean, the Kezrakai are, they're, for the way Eric described it to me, is they're almost like the Elder Dragons of Guild Wars 2, they're not really dragons. They're these like kind of horrible abomination monstrosities that are incredibly powerful. And so the way I pitched it was, okay, a Kezrakai disguises himself not only as that, you know, avatar of magic that eventually showed itself to Tom, he also disguised himself one further layer deep in as this giant star god thing. And ba you know, basically you know, 
he more or less revealed that he was something horrifying and evil to Tom while while not revealing himself to be a Kesrakai. And from that point on, you know, Tom panics and decides, I just need to get the hell away. Well, you know, you, you go out and try to hide. You still end up running into people. And I, you know, during this entire time, Tom was unwittingly infecting people. And, you know, he had no knowledge of it. So that's more or less the source of his warlock powers is this thing that, you know, kind of almost as a side effect had to grant him these powers in order to, you know, willingly still maintaining, you know, not willingly, but still being able to maintain the possession of his body to use as a host. So at that, at this point, you know, I, I don't remember how it got revealed. I think during the skills challenge, I ended up using some of my warlock magic as, you know, kind of an arcana check to drive the monsters back. And of course, Rose notices this, notices, holy crap, this guy's using Kesrakai magic and immediately tells her father who, you know, ends up with, you know, the end result is a whole lot of weapons get pointed at Tom. And he's like, what? And it's, it's not just you. Like one of the things that's, um, brought to the group's attention at this point is even though the Kezer, even though the Thra in the time period that we're all originally from had for the most part become independent and were no longer tied to the Kezerkai, after the beginning of the second war when we all vanished, the Thra fall again to the Kezerkai and come under their rule, come under their control. And so essentially I am viewed as the ally of the enemy, the tool of the enemy for the foot soldier. Yeah. The foot soldier shock the, trooper. The, yeah. The, the absolute um, forefront of evil in the in the eyes of these people. And so as a result, especially after they find out that we're the, the cause of the entire second war, these guys are pissed at us and we're all basically slated for, um, execution in the morning with the exception of Rose, because she's the one that discovered us. And, you know, at the time she's not tied to us in any real way. But, um, not long after we find all that out, they, they leave us alone and, um, Rose, you're, you're put into a room, we're put into a room <laughs> so as they can were. discuss your fate. Yeah. yeah. This, and Rose is kind of just left there to, to keep an eye on us. And this is where um, one of the big pivotal moments of our role-playing campaign happens. Because at this point, um, we ha- all, all of the group have this um, big vision of a goddess that appears before us. Um, I, I, I'd like to turn this over to someone that has a little bit more storytelling experience. Because this is really a great little story that we need to talk about and explain to the group about why and what is the impetus for the rest of our role-playing uh, campaign. Well, so when, when I sat down with Karen and we created Karen's character, it was, it was interesting because I got, I'd like to play a divine character. I'd like to play a divine character. I'd like to play a divine character. <laughs> I mean, from everyone. And I was like, oh... All right. I well, I guess Arcane Striker. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I guess I better start creating some sort of god in the background here because there has to be a way that this power is coming to people. Um, and the way the world had been designed, you know, as Brandon mentioned earlier, the world of Miraval has been being written off and on for over a decade. Um, and so there's there weren't gods <laughs> at the time because they'd been wiped out in the war with Kezerkai. 
So I had to create something. And so we created the goddess Ziriana um, for just specifically for the character of Raven. And that's who shows up because we, we discovered while talking with Ephraim and while talking with the rest of the rebel leadership that Ziriana, the missionary work that Raven had started progressed pretty seriously. And Ziriana became kind of that patron goddess of, um, it's a weird term patron goddess now that I think about it, but <laughs> the, the patron goddess of the, the rebellion. And so Ziriana appears and the, the thing that I explained to everyone is regardless of what you felt, you instantly felt just this overwhelming kind of love for this individual. And Ziriana was, is a, is a deity that kind of has borne a special place in my heart. She was, you know, she's related to, I, I, I'm a firm believer in kind of the monotheistic society. That's such as my personal religious bent. And I've had a hard time. Anytime I tell a story, pushing more than one God into a story. And that's just, maybe that's a flaw in my ability to tell a story, but I can't ever really push more than one God. So I needed to unite these people from different walks of life, different areas of a continent, and in the case of Zevarai, different time periods. Because <laughs> I've got three divine characters in my um, campaign group under kind of one banner. And that was the way I could do that, was create, you know, bring Zevarai in. And in, in this process... Ziriana, sorry. I did bring in Zevarai for the same purpose. But... <laughs> Ziriana was in this case. So Ziriana arrives and explains to everyone that, you know, he greets, she greets everyone as her children and first looks at Raven and explains to Raven. Cause I was getting the sense from Karen as I was making things up as I went along after the time portal that Karen is now very upset that she's not going to find her sister. And I kind of went, Oh, that was, that was bad DMing on my part. Um, guess I better account for this. So Ziriana informs her, your sister's safe. Everything was okay. She lived a long life and she was looked after. And that kind of stilled some of those and then turned and spoke with Zev, who at this point was feeling very self-righteous and very much indignant about what had happened and the fact that she kept screwing up and she felt like a failure. And if, And when you're a character who has willingly given up their own body and given up you know, even in a crippled state, giving up the pleasures of being in a physical form to have your soul instilled into an automaton, there's a sense of duty there that just can't be defined. And so, and Mache has done a very good job of portraying that and saying, yes, hey, is. this is this is my job, this is what I need to do, and this is why. And so I kind of pointed out, and we later found out Mache kind of missed it a little bit due to the late hour. It was pretty late at this point when we were playing, but that Ziriana was her goddess as well, who'd been under a different name at the time and had, you know, was the goddess that the rune priest worshipped as well. And then we turned to Scather and established that Ziriana had posed to the Thra as the dervish in order to kind of help the Thra free themselves from the Kezrakai influence. And <clears throat> at this point, we had given... Tom his chimera leather gloves which help to 
kind of quiet the demons inside of him and keep the Kesha yeah. under control. Yeah, there, there um, was actually a little bit before this all happened where, you know, I was confronted by uh, Rose's father and saying, you know, and basically I, I ended up telling my whole story. And that was when it was made painfully clear to me what exactly I had done. And I was given those gloves as a means of, you know, basically suppressing the ability to spread the infection, so to speak. And so when she was talking to it, he was really afraid and, ta- you know, and I don't know whether it was Brandon kind of reacting to something the DM had sprung on him or yeah, which it was, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of what am I going to do? How, how can I use this power knowing where it comes from? Exactly. And I had I had Ziriana kind of point to Raven's holy symbol and say, do you see the symbol there on that amulet? And it was the symbol of a star and pointed out, you know, your power doesn't have to come from them. Um, and I think as you listen to the first episode, well, we get into the combat in, in episode two, you know, part of the last session we played, I tried really hard to kind of push that Ziriana's pushing a little bit of her influence into his powers, not in any way to change his class, but just to kind of put the character's mind at ease with utilizing, you know, what is now considered a goddess given gift. And so it was, it was, it's personally been my favorite moments of the campaign so far as a DM and as a storyteller was to discuss this big pivotal, you know, what was supposed to be an emotional kind of moment for all of the characters. Um, and I, I, I'm kind of interested at this point just to hear what you guys' reaction to that moment was. I know it was late. I know we were mm-hmm. losing people. But I would like to hear what you know people reacted to that situation and that particular bent of storytelling. Well, well per- oh, go ahead. All right. Um, personally, for me, I was I was quite excited about it because it gave me a new opportunity to where to take Tom in a role playing fashion. Because I mean, I was getting to the point of okay, I I've more or less just spilled my guts about my entire story. You know, here we are only at level two and I've already, you know, more or less every secret Tom ever had is just, you know, now been unfolded. And, you know, where do I take this character? Is he a type who's going to essentially, you know, use the power against them? You know, the kind who's going to willingly sacrifice, you know, the taint on his soul to, you know, make make what has been, you know, made horrible right. And now here I am going, you know, this this opens up an entirely new you know, practically a wing of role-playing options where I can take uh, Tom and, you know, even as my wife is trying to go to bed because she's bone exhausted, I'm sitting here excitedly talking about this. I can just feel her looking at me going, honey, I love you. I'm tired. Can you please shut up? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for me, whether, whether this is uh tropey or whatever you want to call it, stare is, um, a cop out to not have multiple gods. Like you were saying, Eric, for me, it was an interesting catalyzing moment for us as a, as a group of characters, like, because we had yet to have that moment and that realization that bound us together as a team to give us a unifying purpose to go forward with our campaign and to accomplish what we're trying to do as a set of heroes. And for me, this was that moment. It became that moment. Like, well, we we came to this realization that all of us in one way or another were already 
working for the same side, trying to do what was right. And now we had a reason to continue forward and to do what was right because we all realized what we're, we're, we're essentially working together. We all have the same end goals in sight, even if our backgrounds are different, our situations are different, or um, our opinions on each other might be different. It's like we might not like each other necessarily, but hey, we all serve the same uh, deity. We all serve the same being with the same we purposes. We all have the same mind. mission. Yeah. Exactly. And so it, it served as this wonderful unifying moment, and it just is going to be a great impetus going forward. And for my character, it was a real comfort to know that even though my people had been um, conquered again, in a sense, and were serving the Kezerkai, to know that the symbol that was our freedom, the thing that was... Um, the impetus for us to overthrow the Kezrakai in the first place, the fact that she still existed, that she had appeared to me and had given me something to do was extremely powerful. And I was very impressed with it. And it made me um, much more into my character's religious aspects and the idea that I need to be the defending face for the group to protect us as we continue forward to do the things that, uh, she needs us to do for her in order to save the world. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Karen. Oh yeah. I was just going to say at this point, I'm still kind of ticked as Zev because <laughs> I don't like that. She moved us to the future and I was really close to my sister. And I was really hoping to find her at some point, but when Ziriana comes up to us and is like, um, this is your mission. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to trust Ziriana. I mean, like, I'm going to have to trust Zev because Ziriana tells me to. But that doesn't mean I have to like her. So I'm kind of this this balance of dislike trusting. It's, yeah. I, I that That's my train of thought. Okay. Um, Holly, did you have anything you want to add? Um, well, oh, I, I could add a little bit. Um, at this point in the story, Rose was still fairly unflushed out. Um, I knew a basic backstory for her, and I knew what type of character I wanted. But I hadn't really thought about any religious aspect, so I wasn't really sure how she would react to this whole um, situation. And so... After the session was when I really had to think it over to to think about how that plays in and what her motivation to to join this group of strangers would be. And what I kind of came up with was she had been raised by her father in this troop of um, resistance warriors. And she never really had a feminine influence in her life. She never knew her mother and... So when she meets this um, Ziriana and she just feels this overwhelming love and calm and she she really feels almost like the presence of her mother with her. And it's the first time she's really had that kind of an influence in her life because it's usually been about um, being the toughest and being the survival mode. And so this was kind of a new experience for her. And it was kind of touching her 
in a way that she hadn't really felt these kind of emotions before. And so I think that that was kind of her driving force is that she feels this peace that if her mother were with her, that this would be what she would want her to do. And so that's kind of the um, decision that I, I came up with as far as why Rose would kind of agree to this mission that seems almost hopeless with this group. <laughs> but, um, you know, other than that, I, at the time I didn't have much to think about with it, but after the fact, I, I really came to appreciate that, that, um, event because I think it does bring the group together in a, in a way that we hadn't had before. So the other thing that needs to be mentioned at this point is uh, during this appearance um, by this deity to the entire group, we were given a mission, a way to fix the things that had gone wrong and to put a stop to the Kezerkai. And so this begins the impetus of our, uh, the entire rest of our D and D campaign where we're sent on a mission to uh, first obtain um, four items and this needs to be mentioned because this is where we're at in the in the quest right now is we're off on our way to obtain the first of these items. So the four items are, um, if I remember, I, let's uh, uh, tell me if I say something wrong, uh, Eric, but it's the Fang of Torment, which is at the Crag's Quarry, the Crown of Greybeard, which is... Uh, on the King's Head. It's on the King's Head, the Regent King in... Something Bastion, I want to say. I, I don't remember what the name of the location is exactly, but it's the Regent King currently has this crown and we need to get it from him. Then, by hook or by crook. That's right. Uh, then there is the Ever-Burning Gem, which is located in the Frigid Waste. And then the final item is the Crystal Crixor, which is currently has an unknown location, something that we all assume we'll discover as we continue on in our adventures, but it's these four items that we need to obtain. Did I say it wrong? Crystal of Crixor. Crystal yeah, you left of... out the of. Oh, I forgot the <laughs> of. Okay. So it's crystal of Crixor. Sorry. Uh, but it's these four items we need to obtain. And I don't think we know the exact purpose of these items or exactly what they'll do yet, but we know that these are the things. No, it was, it was described to you. Oh, that's right. We like, once we have them, um, why don't you describe it? Cause like you're the one that gave us the description anyways, you know what to say. So, so what they're going to do is in it's, it's in order to go back in time, right? Um, it's one of the, what we kind of skipped over with Zeriana's visit was she informed them, you came forward in time for a reason. Like, I know that Zev feels like it was a screw up. I know you were all mad. Get over it. Suck it up. You <laughs> had to come forward in time because, a, you had to get Rose. Um, the mission that you're going to accomplish cannot be accomplished without Rose, number one. Number two, the artifacts you need didn't exist until now. And you have to have these artifacts. She pretty much tells Zeverai, Zeverai's mission initially would have failed because they didn't have everything they needed. Um, so they've come forward in time to obtain these things. So then you're left to Wicket, and Wicket kind of explains, well, how you're going to use these to go back in time initially is you're going to have the crown, and <clears throat> you're going to set the crown in, you have to go to the Mage Isles, 
after you've obtained, and that's something that got left, is once you've obtained all of the pieces, mm -hmm. you have to go to the Mage Isles. And on one of the altars on the Crystal Isle, you have to stab the dagger in. You have to lay the crown over it so that it kind of forms like the center piece inside of the crown. And the crown's just like a circlet. You have to put replace the pommel gem on the thing of torment, which is a dagger, um, with the crystal of Crixior. And then the ever-burning gem has to be set down right against the blade. And then there's a ritual that you guys have to learn there in the Mage Isles. And what that does is it'll conduit up through that dagger. And that'll help you open the portal. Um, and all that you were told by Ziriana is whatever is left of when this is done, because the amount of energy that it'll burn and things like that, you have to take with you. Um, and so that's going to be an added degree of difficulty with this big, huge portal open, and you've got to get through it getting whatever's left from the, the you know, the catalytic process there to open it up. Mm -hmm. But so that's, that's what you're after. That's your current MacGuffin, your current quest for this particular um, stage of your campaign is obtaining those items and making your way to the Mage Isles to perform this ritual. So at the, to accomplish this, we've been yeah. given an airship. Exactly. So um, we made a decision that the first thing we would go after, knowing that we know its location and that we, we figure that it's probably going to be the uh, easier of the ones to obtain at this moment is to go after the Fang of Torment. So at, we're on our way and um, Wicket, our new little friend, Ah, little friend. He um, presents us with um, an airship, like uh, like Brandon said, and this is our first introduction to the Whipper Will. Now we could go into some discussion of that, but it's already talked about in our first episode. So you know what? We're here. We are, guys. We're caught up on the role playing aspects of this campaign. Now you officially know as much as we do. Exactly, and um. Well, except Eric. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of our our DM, you know pretty much everything our players know. Um, we hope you guys have enjoyed listening to this. I know it was a little bit long, but we really did want to get this information out there so that you guys could more thoroughly enjoy uh, the rest of our campaign as we continue our adventures. If you want to know what happens from here, you need to start with episode one, and as we continue on, you'll get to hear the stories and adventures as we go. But we're going to go ahead and get this wrapped up here in the interest of getting this finished in an under two hours podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and get wrapped up here. So I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to the podcast. Um, if you're interested in um, the podcast, you can leave comments on our website at they might be heroes podcast dot com. You can also send us emails at uh, they might be heroes at Gmail. Is it They Might Be Heroes podcast or They Might Be Heroes? They Might Be Heroes. Okay. They Might Be Heroes po They might be heroes at gmail.com. You can also follow us at twitter.com slash tmbhpodcast. Or if you're interested in following us individually as players, you can follow Eric at... At Shripocles. Uh, you can follow Brandon at... The B Matt. You can follow Karen at... Karen. Here. Tanzan Mitt God. Tanzan And you can follow Holly at Lucky underscore star. It's spelled kind of funny though. Okay. Two, st two R's in star. Yeah. Anyways. 
you can look it up on the website. Uh, <laughs> if you're interested in following me, you can follow me at, at Scather. And that's going to do it for this episode of the uh, They Might Be Heroes. We encourage you to follow the feed as soon as we can possibly get this approved on iTunes. It will be there. But until then, you can pick up the feed at our website. Uh, visit it again at theymightbeheroespodcast.blogspot.com. On behalf of us and the rest of the group and Match, even though she couldn't be here tonight, thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Say goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, goodbye everyone. everyone. What? <laughs> <laughs>